Hey, hey, everyone! Welcome to the Vital Core Salon. I'm Kara, your host and salonier. For those of you who are new to this podcast, I'm here to offer sonic comfort and conversation with women who are not letting bullshit or burnout stop them. Today, I'm super excited to be talking to Mary, the Mary of Mary's Gone Crackers. Mary Waldner was a practicing psychotherapist in California for 27 years before starting Mary's Gone Crackers, a wildly successful gluten-free organic cracker and snack company. You've probably seen these crackers on a shelf near you. Inspired by her own struggles with celiac disease, she saw a need for nutritious, gluten-free options that tasted good. Mary offers a unique perspective when sharing her stories and insights as both a healer and a food company entrepreneur. In our chat today, we're going to talk about healing, measuring success for yourself, and the sometimes harsh realities of building, running, and exiting a business. For the uninitiated among us or the non-entrepreneurs, let's just say it's not all glitter and rainbows all the time. I'm so grateful to Mary for opening up her experience and pulling from her wisdom so that we can all learn today. This chat with Mary also really invoked the concept of a salon. It was recorded in my living room. We're going to hop over to the conversation, but one quick thing first. Don't forget to share this podcast with at least one human and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Voila, meet Mary. Mary, let's travel back in time. How did you come to start Mary's Gone Crackers? Oh, it's such a great story. Well, I think the key is that I was sick most of my life. Um, When I look back, I probably, it probably started when I was like three or four. Um, So it just became part of who I was, that I would have stomach aches all the time, that I would have kind of low level, low energy, that I just wasn't. Uh, probably low level depression, you know, that I just wasn't um, like other people, but I didn't know that because I just, it was just always who I was. So somewhere in my late thirties, early forties, I started to look around and realize that this, I was sick, that it wasn't just, um, you know, normal. And so I kind of got on a mission to, um, to figure out what it was. And I always knew that it was food related, just kind of intuitively, but never knew what. And a lot of serendipitous things happened to figure out that I was gluten intolerant, celiac disease, whatever you want to call it. I didn't even know what gluten was. And so I just, so I was 43 by that time. So I'd been sick for 40 years, basically. And how long were you actively trying to unwind this? Probably about four years, maybe. Once I, yeah, once I really, you know, I mean, I'd always, I mean, I was a therapist. I'd always been a health nut. You know, I ate whatever the diet craze. It wasn't, it was like, 
healthy, but I was eating whole grains. I was know? just going to say, yeah. if you think healthy <laughs> if in you California think, right, at that point, it's and, like granola. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, anyway, so once I finally got some definitive answer, I was really excited. I know most people are not happy to get a diagnosis like that, but I was really thrilled because it was something that I could do and not that difficult to get rid of for me anyway, because mm-hmm. I was happy to And within a very short period of time, I was a different person, noticeably to everyone outside of me and certainly to myself. And so I did that at home easily, but going out was the challenge, especially. So this was 1994 when this was not a big deal. People didn't know about gluten. Restaurants didn't know what it was. Um, So I would... Going to parties and restaurants was really a challenge. Um, everybody, if you think about it, you have a big bread basket and everybody's eating bread and I was starving because... And salivating. Yeah, exactly. I'm gluten-free as well. Yeah. Because of Hashimoto's. Okay. As right. a, it, it helps with managing the symptoms for that. But yeah, when you right. sit and you look at a bread basket... And I always joke, if I'm ever diagnosed with late stage cancer, mm-hmm. I am going to drink malty beer and eat sourdough <laughs> and eat toast. eat as much bread, right. I think about that sometimes. Chocolate cake for me. Oh. <laughs> but um, so I had the idea for uh, something, to some kind of thing to bring with me. And I knew the ingredients would be brown rice, quinoa, flax seeds, and sesame seeds, because those were the, you know... People didn't know what quinoa was back then, but Mm -hmm. I did. Because again, I was always on the cutting edge of nutrition because it was kind of, it was just kind of my alternative hobby in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I started playing with that and it turned into a cracker. It wasn't, that wasn't my original vision, but that was fine. I had it, the the dough was very gooey, so I had to keep Mm -hmm. flattening it until it got to be uh, bakeable. And so I made these crackers and I thought, wow, they're pretty good. I'll take, so I took them with me to restaurants and parties. And I had, I was really happy. I had this um, very satisfying thing to crunch on and I could put butter or whatever dip or, you know, whatever was at the table or at the parties. And it really satisfied me. So I did that for years. And then over that time, watched other people eat them and kind of go crazy over them. Not just like, (laughs) oh, these are good, but like, wow, these are fabulous. Where did you get them? And so I had to keep making more and more and more. And I got a new oven because I could put six racks in my old oven. I could only do three and I was, and they're very, they were very labor intensive to make. So, you know, I'm scooping out individual crackers on a tray. And so I was making crackers all the time and giving them to people and just watching this thing happen, thinking this is not a normal reaction to a cracker. You know, this is something true. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't put a saltine in front of someone yeah, and, and be people like, wow. So there was a friend of mine owned the local um, health food store where I lived and I brought her um, bags of them. Now, by this time, um, I had decided I, I had woken up one New Year's. It was a New Year's Day and I think it was 1999 or maybe 2000. I'm not sure. And I went to find my husband and I said, you know what? We have to manufacture these crackers because... 
Um, it's a new millennium. And it was, and he <laughs> said, okay, time. you know, <laughs> that was that, you know, I'm a therapist. He's a general contractor. We know nothing about food manufacturing, but, um, <laughs> So by the time I went to this friend's health food store, we ha- I had little bags of you know of, with handmade labels. We'd come up with the name, um, and I put them. I gave her a bag one day, and instead of I th- I thought she was just going to take them home and eat them, but instead she opened up the bag and put them on the counter in the store. And I was shopping in this little health food store, going, and then I start hearing this commotion in the store, like, oh my God, these are amazing. Where can I buy them? And she kind of came to me sheepishly and said, Mary, you have to bring me more of these. Um, And are you thinking, I've only got six trays in my oven. (laughs) That's like 240 crackers I can make in about five hours, you know, so it was took a long time. So I started bringing her bags of them and selling them in her store. And we couldn't keep up. You know, every couple of days she'd call and say, I need more. I'd go, oh my God. <laughs> you know, who are these people? Yeah. And <laughs> so that's when, you know, my husband said, You've got to stop doing that. We'll never do this if you're baking crackers all day long. And so. I I think I did that for about a year in her store, and then I stopped, and we really started figuring out how to do it. So my eyes are bugging out as you're talking because I can't even imagine you were keeping up with this for a year. Yeah, no, it was insane. So I mean, were you still Mary's Gone Crackers? Yeah, yeah. The name Mary's Gone Crackers has so many meanings (laughs) (laughs) because you know I'm a therapist. I mean, it, it came from my women's group. So I had all this, these health crises, right? When this mm-hmm. kind of all came together and I started, um, this is another great story. I, I grew a uterine fibroid very quickly and I was hemorrhaging every month. Mm-hmm. And the doctor said, you have to have this removed surgically, you know, cause you're, I was anemic by that time. Mm-hmm. And of course, I didn't want surgery. And I talked to a friend of mine and she said, well, I have this psychic that, you know, is pretty good at this stuff. So I called this random psychic and she said, I see you healing with a group of women. And I said, well, I don't have a group of women. And she said, well, I see you on the coast. I'm living inland in California, um, you know, maybe like an hour away from the coast. She said, I see you on the coast healing with a group of women. And I thought, well, all right, that's not very helpful. And then I got off the phone with her and I thought, well, fine, I'll gather a group of women and And we'll go to the coast. Well, my best friend lived right on the coast. So we had it at her house and 11 women showed up that day. And I knew I had the whole vision for what I needed. It was this hands-on, it was walking on the beach, it was eating food together, it was, you know, hands-on healing, telling stories, all that. So we spent the whole day. And um, the next, so I think whenever I got my next period, it was normal. I had already scheduled surgery by then. And it was the first time that I wasn't hemorrhaging. And so I canceled surgery because they said what could work would be acupuncture, but I didn't have time. So I canceled the surgery. I did acupuncture for a year 
everything went. I never had the surgery. Everything went away. All my bleeding went away, the symptoms, all of it. And the women's group continued. It's to this day. It's been 25 years, 26 years. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. So that's how, actually, it's been, yeah, 25 years. What do you attribute the healing to? What I always said at the time was that I totally know that we can heal. But for me, it was whether I could let it in or not. Um, especially from women, because I have a very challenging relationship with my mother. And I'm, you know, very tough and fierce. And there was something about softening to other women to let that in. And so that was my whole agenda that for that day, because I knew these women would be generous. We're all, you know, women are very generous with each other. It was whether I could allow it to kind of penetrate. So that was my plan for that day. And it, it worked. Mary, that is amazing. Yeah. So you're feeling better, but you are getting close to burnout, trying to balance one career and, <laughs> and making these cracker stupid product. crackers. And yeah, it, but that stayed because our plan was, you know, we didn't know what would happen. Uh, this, like I said, gluten-free was not a thing back then. I can't even imagine. There was, Cause I still find it challenging yeah, now. Some there days was one other cracker on the market that was like really pressed cardboard, but we knew that there were celiac support groups all over the country. There were 400 of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So the combination was first figure out how to make them, right? Yep. Outside of my kitchen. Um, Then raise money, write a business plan, find investors, find equipment that's going to work. So this became, you know, both of our second full-time jobs, um, Easily. Yeah. I'm hearing that list and it's yeah. enormous because yeah, so under each of those tasks are right. thousands right. of subtasks. Right. So division of labor started to become clear. I would make these huge bowls of dough and go to various equipment places and see if they if it worked. Um my husband would start writing a business plan and l- working on numbers because he was much well, not even better. I, I was not, that wasn't my realm at all. <laughs> so that process, and then, you know, cold calling people from the food industry, like packaging, organic certification. I mean, just think of every possible thing, design. It just, it, you know, I have a notebook from that time of, of just, you know, lists and, and, what was amazing about the food industry is how generous people were, the, the natural food industry, because they love food and they care about it and, you know, just cold call after cold call. And that was a five-year journey for both of us, you know, before wow. we raised money, wrote the business plan, found somebody that could help us manufacture them. Um, it was, a, you know, it was quite a journey. So it wasn't, wasn't until 2004, plus 9-11 happened in the middle of that mm-hmm. because we had a bunch of people lined up to invest and they all kind of disappeared after that. So we had to kind mm-hmm. of start over. It was, it was quite a journey. And you had a lot of marketing challenges, right? Not in the beginning. 
I'm trying to, you know, our marketing plan was getting the crackers into people's mouths. That was pretty much all we did. So uh, what so I mentioned, those 400 celiac support groups, mm-hmm. we would package up our crackers with a letter from me and send them all over the country to those support groups because people who can't eat certain things are loyal when they find something that they can eat. So most of our marketing was direct to consumers and then to buyers in stores that we knew did a good, like um, the major natural food distributor has a list of the top 100 stores, for example. So we would just send them crackers with, again, a letter and, um, and let them know that there were celiac people, support groups in their neighborhood and these people were going to come and look for these crackers. And that really, it was more, so it was more of a pull than a push, you know, that, um, that was what we did because the crackers, you know, sold themselves, which is amazing. Yeah. As a business owner. Yeah. The dough was a challenge for you, though. Totally. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, because most crackers are made by, like, a typical flour. You roll it out. The machines are rolling and then cutting, right? And Mm -hmm. it's it's all on, on like, a band oven that just continuous. um, And I'm picturing a longer Easy Bake Oven in my head. Uh Uh-huh. It's and maybe a band. not powered by a light bulb, right. right? Where it's pulled through exactly. instead of exactly, but you know, a hundred feet or so. Got I mean, it. So the dough goes in a hopper and gets mushed and pressed and flattened and then cut. Right? These don't work that way at all because the dough is hot. It's like cement, kind of gooey. You know, it's grains. It's mm-hmm. rice and quinoa and seeds. So, and they have to be formed individually. So it's it, yeah. So we actually had to invent. Um, a couple of pieces of equipment, modify some, and then invent. Um, it was even when we were making them at at first, mm-hmm. we were not. We were still figuring out equipment. Um, we got how to how to make the dough. We got how to get it onto the tray. There's some other proprietary things that I still can't talk about, but there are patented pieces of equipment now that um figured it out so the, the you <laughs> your know, list was just getting insane. longer as it got shorter right? but the the good part of that is that no one else can make these crackers so when they hit the market and started showing up on people's radar and started getting bigger pieces of the pie you know when when mm-hmm. they show um and you say you're not a numbers person yeah well i learned <laughs> um no one else could come up and copy them, you know, because nobody could figure out how to make them. That's amazing. So that was That's a that, nice, nice competitive yeah, advantage. It, absolutely. Yeah. It also made it almost impossible for us to make them, but, <laughs> but it kept other people out. So your tenacity, where does it come from? Because I, I yeah. mean, I imagine these are things that once people get into the food production process, that they start to be flummoxed when it's like that equipment doesn't exist. Yeah. How did you I think going? it was a combination of um, my ex, now ex-husband and I, because we both, first of all, we're in our fifties now doing this. We're not in our twenties. Um, we've both gone through a lot in our work lives and mm-hmm. we've taken money from friends. Ah. That failure was not an option. That was our 
That was our mantra. Failure was not an option. We knew, we figured out many times that if the crackers didn't succeed, how long would it take us to pay back all the money that we had raised? So that was always in our thoughts. But it was also, I know for me, it was like, I'm going to feel really bad if, if I don't give this my all. You know, I've had lots of ideas in my life. I'm sure most people do. But when it all comes together and it's time to really make something happen, there was just no going back. It would have felt terrible to just not give it everything that we had. That was, you know, and we had those conversations all the time because it was insane what we were doing. But it was so clear. I mean, that was the other line is the universe wants these crackers. You know, this is bigger than just some whimsical idea here. This is, there's so many things just lined up and miracles happened all the time in, in the midst of hell. I'm not saying that, you know, that it wasn't hell, but, but we were getting, um, support in ways that it just kept us going. So it was enough to be reminded. It, yes. it, it didn't take the pressure of what was happening off. Right. But there were those kinds of signs that, that it, were it feels amazing. funny to say this as two gluten-free women sitting yeah. here, but a trail of breadcrumbs yeah. that were like, this, <laughs> this is at least yeah. the right path. Yeah. I think the other, the other image I use is that uh, we were often on a teeter-totter so that one of us was usually up at a time. We weren't both <laughs> down at the same time. That happened once or twice, but mostly we would be there to pull the other one back up into, wait, let's remember why we're here and what we're doing. Cause that this is possible. Yes, <laughs> yes. And we're moving forward and all of that. <laughs> yeah. I love that it flip flopped. Yes. Like you guys actually had to just take turns. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So now the crackers are in stores. They're going wild. Mm -hmm. People are buying them. What changes for you as a business owner or is it just... Um, So we had to move into our own facility um, for lots of reasons. The people that helped us get started were almost putting us out of business too. Because, you know, nobody cares about your product the way you do. And we were growing so fast, which people think is a great thing usually, but it it brings its own challenges, um, mostly money, cash. Mm-hmm. Um, so that meant once we moved, that's when I closed my practice. I had been being... So all this time yes. you had still been in practice? <laughs> yeah, not full time, but... Um, but I kept going. We needed an income, you know, because right. uh, one of us had to work. He, my husband had stopped working somewhere in there. And um, mine was more flexible and, you know, 20 hours a week instead of 40. And um, and but, you could turn that faucet yeah, up and down. Right. And so once, but once we had to move into our own facility, we moved away and I had to close my practice. So that was two, about two and a half years into it. Wow. Was that a difficult decision for you? Because you had been doing that work for decades, yeah, correct? T- almost like 27 years. Yeah. By the time I stopped. Yeah. Wow. You know, I was exhausted and I was excited about growing the cracker business, but it was, it was sad, you know, it had been my identity forever. It's still more my identity, I think, than a cracker person. (laughs) Um, You know, I see myself as a healer um, more than I do 
um, a business person. Well, that underpinned why you started the cracker business in the first place. Right. It just happened to, to sort of pull you in this. And it makes sense to me that I, you know, because every so often I would look and go, what, how did this happen? You know, how, <laughs> how am I in this cracker business? And, you know, when I'd step back enough, I would see that um, I really have always, I've always loved to bake and, but I've always loved to feed people. That's always been my thing. Um, and especially as I started to learn about healthy food and what that meant and how it impacted our our bodies and our psyches and our sense of self. Because when you feel good, you feel good, you know? And when you feel bad, no amount of therapy is going to fix that. But I loved making things that tasted great and really nourished people's bodies. That uh, my, you know, kind of sneaking in healthy food um, (laughs) while giving someone joy, right? Well, and then there's the social element. Like, so... For the last 10 years, you know, a lot of the clients that I work with were looking at what I would call a, a sort of dress philosophy, looking at diet and rest and exercise and mm-hmm. stress management and social relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, to your point, there are certain things that have come up with clients for me over the years where if you're in a bad marriage or you're just, you're hating your career and you're not doing the right work for you, no dump truck full of kale is going to fix that. (laughs) And, you know, and then also the social element, Mm -hmm. like we forget that. And when we we look at research, I just went to South by Southwest Mm. recently, there were so many panels on loneliness Mm. and how it's affecting specifically a lot of talk around Gen Z. Mm-hmm. That they're like the sickest and most socially isolated right. population right now. Right. And people are starting to go, huh, is that a correlation or yeah. what contributes to this? And people are starting to really look at it. And it's it's fascinating. Like yeah. we can't separate those things, right. Right? right? So the joy of eating good food and eating it with friends yeah. and socially and right. being together is so important. And being connected to your body and to the earth. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the generation that's isolated is also isolated from those factors, from their bodies and from cooking and from the the tactile, sensual experience of connection to life. Um, So it's not just social isolation in that way. It's isolation from what it means to be human, Um, which is, to me, I think of food often as the interface between us and the planet. You know, it's how we literally ingest our, our world, you know, of course. Yeah. And when it's healthy and alive and fresh and smells good and you know where it comes from and all of those ways that keep you juicy, you know, and, (laughs) and in life, then that nourishes you. And that can taste wonderful. And that's what my kind of, one of my many soapboxes <laughs> is, <laughs> that food can really taste delicious um, and nourish you in a good way. So is that part of what kept you going? Like you said you would occasionally step back yeah. and go, okay, what, 
Yeah. What are we doing here? Do that, we keep going? And it felt like, and this was my naivete, that, um, that we really, because we were being loved so much so quickly that I thought this would be an indication to the food industry that there is another way to go, you know, that we could be an example and really begin to change the food industry. Ha, ha, ha. Well, <laughs> that's a whole other story. But I think that that was part of my motivation, too, that... Um, that look what's happening, you know, other people are, uh, you know, com yeah. big companies are noticing us. They're wondering, wait, who are these people? What are they doing? Um, that's got to have an impact, you know, that's got to make them think about their own products. That It's got to, you know, that I thought that would happen very quickly. I think what is happening is that consumer awareness has changed, obviously, in the last mm -hmm. 10, 15 years so dramatically that um, that's what's making food companies change um, because the demand for um, organic, mm -hmm. for um, transparency, um, all the values that we were and are, um, are now kind of mainstream in a way that this is what consumers want. And so Campbell's soup, for God's sakes, is changing their... Are they really? Yes. They're taking salt out of their... Um, a, a lot of their salt, a lot of their sugar. They're changing their recipes. I mean, this is, you know, Procter & Gamble is... Is, they're losing market share for the first time in my lifetime, in the, in the first time in their lifetime, if wow. you think about it. And that's, that's what's changing the food industry. So it's very exciting. It makes me think back to, you've probably seen the docu-food Inc. Mm -hmm. It makes me think back to the scene where I believe it was, was it Joel Salatin? It could have been. And then it was a rep from Walmart. And they were talking about organic milk. Mm -hmm. And the rep from Walmart just said, show me that people want to buy it. Like, right. I will, I will right. provide this. That's like, all they I care will, about. That's I right. will do this, mm -hmm. but show me that people want to buy mm -hmm. it. Like, I need, I can't, I can't go back to my bosses and say, we need to switch we to do organic the right milk. thing. God forbid, you know? <laughs> <Exactly>. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's like, you're right. Yeah. And I mean, that wasn't that long ago. And right. that was the, the state of the conversation at that point. And now I, I feel like it's everywhere. Yeah. You, you can go into a Target and get organic right. No, food. it is everywhere. Yeah. Oh, so you certainly have contributed to that. I you have. have to realize yeah, that. Yeah. I, I get that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you really receive it or, or do you get it? Well, you know, I think my head was so buried in just doing what we were doing that I didn't, I get it more now that I'm kind of out of it, that, um, that what we did was an amazing thing, um, and did have an impact and was kind of the beginning it's uh, of this wave that it's funny because, um, you know, my ex-husband was so worried that we're going to miss the wave. We're going to miss the wave. And I'd go, you know, we, we can only do what we're doing, you know, we can't, <laughs> there's, there's yeah. only 24 hours in a day. But, um, but in fact, we were be the beginning of a wave that we didn't even see. We didn't even, I mean, we knew that wave was coming. We just had no idea where we were on it <laughs> and that we were actually <laughs> leading it, um, was amazing. 
And so. I imagine some days it probably felt like the wave was just crashing oh, onto you. All, yes. More often than not is what that, that's, that's what it felt like. Yeah. So at this point in your life, you and your ex-husband are keeping the machine moving. Right. Like you're just tackling now more of the business problems. Right. So the main business problem, there were two. The main one was always production and manufacturing because we could never meet um, the demand. Which the, sounds like a fantastic problem yeah. to have when you say it, right. but I can only imagine the enormity. It's, yeah. And so we had to choose, you know, who we could sell it to and who, which orders we could fulfill. And that always meant, you know, buying more equipment, getting more efficient, which happened over time. You know, you learn and learn and learn, but um, it's still, um, you know, that was a huge, there were bottlenecks everywhere in the factory, you know, because we'd get one new piece of equipment and then that would slow things down in another part. And, um, but that was a constant challenge and a constant learning, steep learning curve. And then the other one, which we've talked about is just the money side and the investment side, um, which is a, um, a story most people don't know about because it's not what they saw. What they saw was we were this incredible phenomenon the in the market and, you know, we were these rock stars. But at the same time, we had taken um, investment money from, well, pretty much almost everyone except for our friends um, were were really hostile and trying to get rid of us and trying to take over the company and trying to steal our company from us and all of that. So it was a, it was a constant battle in the boardroom of survival in that way. So those, you know, that was, that was our life. I'm hearing this and it just sounds so terrifically exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the production challenges alone that you're describing as someone who thinks in a very process minded and I was a CPA for 12 years. Okay. So I'm a numbers process uh-huh. order kind of person by nature. I just happen to be emotionally fluent as well. I know. <laughs> and so I'm hearing that and just thinking like the amount of fixed assets and the cost of that, that you're having to invest in and, and manage those costs. This, this wasn't like you just were running a bakery, right? right. Like where you had right. salary costs and right. No, it kept, cost a good sold. This right, was it kept going. Huge right. investment that sounds like it kept ramping it up. It kept ramping up because you know we when we moved, we moved into this fifty thousand square foot building that was attached to another hundred thousand square foot building, and we took up you know like a postage stamp size <laughs> of it in the beginning, and not very long after we had filled up both buildings. You know, um, oh my god! So within. I'm trying to think. Within two, maybe a year and a half of moving, we we were starting to fill up the first the fifty thousand square foot, and and then as our orders grew, you know, we mm-hmm. took over the second building too. So that yeah, that was constant. Wow. Yeah. And then all of the challenges that come with right. venture capital. Right. I mean. Right. So two, So we moved in 2006. And then in 2007, we took money from a VC group, um, not having any idea what that meant. Um, and again, these were um, 
this group were the, I called them the godfathers of the organic food industry because they had all, <laughs> they were, you know, a good 10 years older than us. They had all started um, iconic organic food companies. Um, we were honored that they, they had been watching us for a long time. We were honored that they finally saw us as, um, you know, potential money makers so that they, and we also needed partners. We needed help. We needed manufacturing help. We needed marketing help. I mean, you know, when I don't remember at what, what point and what, how many millions we were by that time, but you know, geez, we could, we did an amazing thing, but we had a lot to learn. And so we mm -hmm. thought these guys could really help us and they could have helped us. But once we took their money within a few months, it became really clear that what they wanted to do was, um, get rid of us and take over the company, get rid of you as management, get rid of us period, and get rid of ah. our friends. All of the early stage investors, they wanted mm -hmm. us out. They had a recipe, you know, get rid of the founders, get, you know, dilute everybody down, um, take over everything, ramp it up quickly, and then sell it. That was the fast money scene back then, which is still pretty common. Still exists. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But we had no idea. They say never told us that. In fact, they lied to us pretty regularly about it. We never would have taken their money. I think they had no idea how naive we were about that. But Oh, so they thought, you you know what this dance yes. is. You hear this right. song, you know what this but dance is, But we did is, not right? know that dance. Oh, no. And, um, and then when we started to figure it out, they would lie to us anyway. So we never got like, you know... You never had the partnership that you'd hoped for? Oh, never. No, no, no. They never did anything to help us. Um, all they did was because once we got once we figured out what they were doing, we stopped taking money from them. See, they just wanted us to keep spending, 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 so they could give us more money, dilute everybody down, yeah. have more board seats, you know. But again, our friends and a couple of the board members who were, you know, early investors, um, just said no to them. And so they lost at every turn, but, um, but not without, you know, huge battles, huge legal battles. It was, um, yeah, it was a nightmare. How were you taking care of yourself through all of this? Do you remember what that looked like? I, I do because my body started falling apart. Um, because this had to be all consuming for you. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, my, my ex-husband was definitely the warrior on the front line. Mm -hmm. And I was the warrior behind him a lot because um, he was the numbers guy and also because just our personalities. And um, so it was all consuming for both of us. But also I was the kind of calm um you know, I cooked food. Mm -hmm. I tried to keep a, you know, our, our lives balanced. It wasn't possible for him, but for me, what happened was I, um, you know, I stopped doing all the things that I had been doing to take care of myself. Part of being a therapist is learning what you need and, and mm -hmm. how to, how to live, practice what you preach in a sense. And so. And that's an ongoing that never Journey. stops. That's yeah, like, right. I think, I hope maybe when I die someday that I'll get a little reprieve. <laughs> right. That, but. right. But that, right. That's who I am. And it's also, 
I was proud of having figured out how to eat right and how mm-hmm. to exercise and how to take care, you know, to keep myself in, in balance. And when we moved, that all stopped. Um, and then, of course, my my neck and my back started falling apart, and I had to get physical therapy and because um, I'd been sitting at a computer or working on equipment or whatever I was doing. Intense. And like tense, that tension right, goes somewhere. Right. So what I decided was that I was not going to go into the office anymore in the morning ever. I would only go after I took a yoga class, after I meditated, after I did all the things that I had been doing, after I ate a good breakfast, you know, whatever it was, take a walk, um, that I took care of myself in the morning. And, you know, again, my partner was saying, oh, you can't do that. And I'd go, well, if I don't do this, there's not going to be anything left. And the other, the image that I had is, okay, our business is now in the toddler stage. You know, it's several mm-hmm. years old. Um, it's time to let some babysitters come in and, <laughs> you yeah. know, and manage things. It's, it's time to... Um, you know, delegate. And, you know, we had some amazing people, obviously, helping us and working. Um, and it was time to, to trust that a little more. And that was what that was my decision. And, and guess what, you know, the world didn't fall apart. Um, and I got better, and I got stronger, and I stayed more balanced. And, um, you know, he didn't, but I did. So... So can we talk a little bit more about this? Sure. I have a few questions because this podcast, there's a lot of women listening that mm-hmm. are either on a fast track to burnout or have burnt out or mm-hmm. maybe in the process of burning out as as we're talking right mm-hmm. now. Do you remember what helped you make that decision and go from I should work out to I'm just going to make this happen? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there were two things. One, I was in pain. Um, and, you know, the physical therapist was telling me that um, things I knew about my body, you know, my neck had, I'd been in a lot of car accidents in my youth, and I knew what I needed to do to take care of it. And I also think because I had had that background in taking care of myself, it wasn't a new concept for me. It wasn't like in the middle of insanity, I had to figure this out. I knew how to do that. Um, you know, one of my spiritual teachers used to talk about, you don't learn to meditate when there's a boom box going off in your head. You know, <laughs> you find some, you, you practice when things are calm so that when that boom box goes off, you have something to fall back on. Um, you have this practice. And I did, I had had that. So it wasn't as hard for me as I imagine it might be for other people. And that's such a great perspective on it. And it's also, you knew what you were reaching for too. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's been really hard for women that I've worked with one-on-one over the years was they, it's been so long since they felt good that they don't remember what that felt like. Right. Right. Like I think I had done a a session with a woman and I said, you know, when is the last time that you felt like you woke up when your alarm went off feeling mostly rested Mm -hmm. and she was quiet for a minute. And then she said, 
1997. Right? And it, yeah, it, yeah. it breaks my heart to hear it, but it's also like, okay, it's a level set too, mm-hmm. right? It's at least you know that. Yeah, like, <laughs> at least exactly. you have that like, memory. Oh, right. she's, mm-hmm. she vaguely remembers when, mm-hmm. at what point in her life. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you get back to experiencing that? Mm-hmm. So that then you keep it going too, right. right? Like once you get a taste of, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good in my skin every day. Right. It's a little bit easier then to make that investment day after day. Yeah. And I think I'm not sure good is the right word, <laughs> you know, strong maybe and sustained or something because, because that didn't take away the stress or the, the angst of what I was going through, but I had a foundation now. I had something um, other than just my head. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really crucial to me. And, you know, I think it gets into some of the other areas that we're going to talk about in terms of what success looks like. Um, Let's talk about that. Because when I look back on this, this was not generally a joyous experience for me to do this (laughs) business. Um, it's, It's joyous that I listened to my deep self and and took a risk and did it. I mean, that is unbelievably fabulous to me. But the process and what, you know, there was very little joy in, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But why I see that as a successful thing that I did was that I listened to a deep voice inside of myself. And, and when I was hurting, I did that too. You know, when I said, I'm not going into the office in the morning and I'm going to take care of myself, that came from a deeper place of knowing what was needed and doing it no matter what. And, and again, not, not necessarily feeling good or joyful, but knowing that this is my truth and I'm going to live that. And that I think is the most, that's why I call myself a success, actually. That's a really great reason to call yourself a success. Mm-hmm. And thank you for for being really honest about that. I feel like as you were saying that, my mind goes to sort of the Instagram version of life where everyone's like, follow your passion. And it's very like, you know, and there's glitter and sparkles and like all this stuff about entrepreneurship should feel like this amazing pleasure ride every day. And I've not experienced that. I mean, I, I loved the sessions I loved the work, but it it didn't mean that I didn't have to close my books. It didn't mean I didn't have to do sales and marketing. Like, I mean, everyone's job has parts of it that are not the most exciting or fulfilling. Right. And I think that we forget that there's something about being alive that's about service, you know, and it's about and whatever you're serving, whether it's your community or the planet or or God or or your inner voice or whatever, that um, we're not guaranteed that glitter, as you say, <laughs> but we are guaranteed um, that sense of accomplishment and integrity and success. These are things that I call success um, when we know that we've been true to who we are. And that's the therapist speaking, but that's also the most important thing that there is and why we're here. And we can't always see why we're here. But when we listen inside, 
I think that that um, we can count on that, that that's going to take us where we need to be. I believe you. How has your definition of success changed over the years? Has it? I, you know, I don't think I thought that much about it, but probably not. It probably hasn't changed, but it's gotten so much more clear that it isn't because, because I'm kind of famous now, you know, when people recognize what I've, you know, that my pictures on the box of the crackers, it's like, Oh my God. Um, <laughs> um, which is, you know, that's kind I of, I love that I have yeah. such a celebrity in my living room. <laughs> right. right now. It's kind of fun. But, um, but what I see is that people are projecting something onto me that has very little to do with who I am. I'm not always sure what they're projecting. It, it's like the American dream is, is kind of common. Like, you know, I've done this amazing thing and I'm successful, meaning what I'm rich or I've, I don't know exactly, but it's kind of, I think that has solidified my sense of success as not that, you know, it's not about being famous or it's, it is about having listened and followed my, my uh, truth and taken a path that was hugely risky. I mean, hugely Mm -hmm. risky and brought something to the world, which is just kind of an amazing thing that, you know, again, like being buried down in the day to day, you don't think of that. And now that I've have some distance on it, you know, I'm, I'm really, um, proud is not a word I use that often, but I am proud that we did that. That was an amazing thing, but it's more that, that I listened inside. Um, I get that. There's a, also a 20 something version of me that was, you know, working for one of the largest firms in the world. And I was ticking off all the boxes Uh of quote unquote success, Success, right? right. Like first generation college student, check, CPA Mm -hmm. exam, check, Mm -hmm. you know, getting the internship to work at the coveted firm, check, Mm -hmm. getting, getting hired full time, check, getting to work on these, you know, I, I got to start in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy because the market had gone south. Mm -hmm. Um, at that point when I was just getting out of school and starting in the working world and I got to do all this exciting work and was being flown to these humongous projects and learning a ton, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, just being in a cubicle on a Saturday night after Mm -hmm. working a 12 hour day thinking this doesn't fit. Like, I think if I had read an article about you back then, I would have been like, oh my God, she's just doing it. She's Mm -hmm. just doing it. I mean, I can see how people would really project that onto you. Mm -hmm. I mean, hearing ourselves is one level of challenge, but then actually doing something with the information that we get from ourselves is a whole nother level. Right. Right. It takes a lot of faith. And a lot of energy and And a lot of hard work. Courage, right. And although I can't mm-hmm. see the scars on you physically, <laughs> I'm sure you've earned a uh-huh. few. Yeah. But that's that's life, isn't it? I mean, do you know anybody that doesn't go through this? You know, I mean, even as what you were just describing, a lot of that was great learning. I wouldn't trade those years. Mm-hmm. They crushed me physically. Mm. Right? Like I ended up leaving with debilitating irritable bowel syndrome Uh that was kind of out of control. Mm -hmm. 
and, you know, and just having to manage like, oh, if I want to go there, is there going to be a place to potentially use the bathroom on the way? Because that could be a miserable day if it starts out bad. Mm -hmm. You know, just doing that kind of triangulation and the, the psychic energy it took just to move myself from A to B sometimes, but I wouldn't trade it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't trade it for a million years. Mm -hmm. I learned a ton. Mm -hmm. And you also sometimes learn, here's what I don't want to be. Like when I saw bosses working, you know, I mean, we sometimes working 80 to a hundred hour weeks. Like I've slept on a conference room floor. Like I've fallen asleep standing at a fax machine with, and I remember (laughs) trying to deny it. And they were like, the keypad is on your, is on your face. (laughs) I was like, okay, I was asleep. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we'd get into the factory at four in the morning because that's when the guys would come and not leave until eight that night because yeah. And all I could do was do the yoga pose legs up the wall, you know, because that was the only thing that I could do to had the energy for. Yeah. So uh, yeah, but that's what it took to get it done. You know, and when I, you know, I was, I wasn't in my twenties, I was in my fifties, but that's the way. Yeah. It's what you, you start on a path. You just had to, we had to do it. Got it. And then you got to a point where you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. What happened? Well, I think that path was forced on us by the VC group, actually. Um, The only way out from them was they really wanted their money out. And we would have happily bought them out, but they didn't want it that way because they hated us by then. They hated that they lost every step of the way. They sued us at one point and lost. I mean, it just never ended. Um, And... But they would not let us buy them out. I think also because they had a group, you know, they had taken money, they had their own fund, and they wanted that to be profitable. We watched, because they invested in about four companies around the same time. All the other companies were were just ruined by them, because their recipe worked on, you know, they, they yep, gotten, cleaned them out. Yep. And, then. and they destroyed every one of the companies. So the only way for us to get rid of them was to sell. And we also still needed a partner. <laughs> you know, we still needed manufacturing help. And so the, um, there was a Japanese company that had actually uh, been courting us for years, they wanted to buy us it was like three years and we, you know, when they first approached us, we weren't interested, but by the time all this stuff happened with the Mm -hmm. VC group, um, they were still there and they are the largest rice cracker manufacturer in Japan. So they knew manufacturing, they knew rice, you know, crackers, they were a billion dollar publicly traded company in Japan. And they offered us way more money than any of the American companies that had been Mm -hmm. looking at us. So that's what happened. So in the very end of 2012, we sold the bulk. We kept a certain percentage, but we sold the bulk of the company to them. And then all of our investors, our friends, the VC group, all the people that had come in got bought out at a really, they made a lot of money. So that they were, I hated that the VC group made a lot of money, but everybody else did too. So that took away that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. It brought other challenges. We stayed with the company. They really wanted us to stay because they didn't know 
anything yet. Yeah, you have this proprietary yeah. technology. And, they, and they're Japanese. They didn't know our market. They didn't know U.S. Mm-hmm. anything. Um, so for two years, we stayed on pretty much the way it was. Um, and then after that, um, they renewed my contract, but they um, did not renew my husband's, which was perfect timing because that's when we separated. <laughs> they didn't know that, but it was an amazing uh, so that was a gift, on the really a friend. gift, because then he could just leave, and not we didn't have to work together or anything like that. And he was really fried. I mean, way more fried than I was because he hadn't been able to compartmentalize the way I had, and um, he'd also been battered by these guys, you know. And in, you had mentioned he was sort of the first the front, line of yeah, defense. He was the which warrior. Yeah, can just wear you down. Yeah, no. So it was. It that worked out well, and so then for another two years, I stayed on in the same capacity, and then you know watched them just do to my company things that I would not have done. Um, and then um, two years ago, so that was at the end of what was that, twenty sixteen? I. Um, became a consultant to the company. And then I moved here to New York. So from California to New York. Um, so I was a consultant, I was still on the board. Um, Mm -hmm. but they were bringing in their own kind of leadership and, and they, but they finally moved the facility and bought, invested in the kind of equipment that we had needed for years. Um, it took them several years to, to make that commitment, but they did it. And now we have these 400 foot continuous ovens. We have three of them now, maybe four by now, um, that are finally able to produce enough of these crackers. (laughs) Here it is, you know, so they moved into Reno, um, around the time that I moved. So almost two years ago. So, so you got to really see it full circle, but yeah. you didn't have to be the one, at least in the last handful of years, yeah. to, to be the one carrying it on no. your back. No, I couldn't anymore. No, then I just got to be the Mary, you know, <laughs> which was literally on my business card, the well, Mary, because that's people would always say, are you the Mary? So I thought, <laughs> okay, I'm the Mary. <laughs> Did they think you were just some like, like actress or like I, I think it's stock still, photography. Yeah, I think people. It's like Betty Crocker or something. People are very <laughs> excited to know that they're really that the story is true. You know, because we don't. Our food companies lie to us all the time, all the time. Amen. And so to see that my story was true, that I'm a real person, that this really, this that everything we say is true, um, I think was just very exciting to people. So what does life look like for the Mary now? The Mary. Um, well, I've put myself on a mandatory year off. So Ooh. I ended December 31st, so it's March. So um, because I was ready to start another pro- another project like immediately. Because part of the reason I realized that it was time for me to go was that I knew that they were never going to make the products that I wanted to make, that I'd been waiting around for them to make. And that they were never going to do that. Um, and even if they came out with sort of the products I wanted to make, that they would never do it my way. Um, mm-hmm. So when I figured that out, which was last year, I thought, okay, I can be done now. And um, 
So I ended, but then I was ready, like, okay. Give me something. Yeah, I'm going to. Well, we've been also, moving in fast forward. For they a fired long time. all the people that I loved by this time. They've gotten rid of my R&D person. They got rid of our sales team. They got rid of our graphic designer. You know, so it's like I have all these people around me that I love. Let's get the team together and go, you know. And then I thought I got again, this is here it is, this loud, loud voice in my head going, "Don't do anything for a year." Woo. And it was like, whoa. I mean, it, I, I, it like talk about putting the skids, you know, it, literally, cause I was like full steam ahead. And then it was this scream in my head. So, okay. Um, and it was, I have to say, after, you know, a few weeks of being in shock, it was a huge relief and the right decision. Um, so, because I think it's taking me a lot more time to recover than I've, I didn't realize how much I had to recover from, actually. <laughs> um, ah. You know, the, like I said a, a while ago, that this was not a joyous experience. I don't think I could have said that out loud, uh, you know, six months ago. I I don't think I re- let, really let in how traumatic this journey has been um, on some level. And again, you know, there's so many layers and one layer it's, it's amazing and wonderful, but on a lot of other levels, it's hugely traumatic and there's a lot to recover from. So what do you think was powering that steam? Like you said, there was this steam building that's sort of the keep going, go, go, yeah. go, go. And then the internal voice is like, stop, stop. Yeah. <laughs> sit still. Um, Part of it is, again, you know, I have all these great ideas for food that need to be on the market. I want to eat them. I want other people to eat them. You know, I have not stopped playing with food and with ingredients <laughs> and with ways, you know, and I, I go to food shows and I see what's out there and I think, Ugh, I want I want a better version of that. And so that's definitely... Um, still in my blood. Um, and that's the fun part. That's always Mm -hmm. been the fun part. These young women that I worked with who I love, they're like my kids. Um, I want, I want to keep them, you know, I mean, they're all doing fine, but I'd love to get us back together. So that's, that's a motivation. (laughs) So the girl band is, we'll get back together at some point. (laughs) Exactly. And also that I have learned so much that I actually think that this could be fun and easy this time. Um, and I, and I keep hitting myself thinking, are you kidding me, Mary? You are actually going to think of doing this again. But I keep (laughs) saying, you know what? I will never manufacture, you know, I will never do that. Um, I will never take VC money. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I've, I've learned the things not to do, but also I know how to do, we've, we've all have learned how to do things now that I think it could be, not that there won't be challenges, but I think it could be fun. There'll Um, be new challenges, but but the amount that you'd be able to already be in front of at this point and predict. And I've already kind of put out feelers. And because I'm the Mary, people really want to give me money. (laughs) 
and that was not true 15 years ago or whenever it was. So, um, that's kind of like, whoa, that's been an interesting thing to see. So having a proven track record yeah. is pretty appealing to yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew it was so right. attractive? I know that's, <laughs> that was, that's been a surprise. So, so that's all there. But meanwhile, I'm doing lots of yoga and living in this spectacularly beautiful. Aren't we spoiled? Place. Oh my God. And I live right on the Roundout Creek. So oh. I have this view and I have, animals that I see every day and um and I'm taking some drawing classes and I'm getting back into sewing I found I pulled out I pulled out a project that's literally been sitting there for 15 years oh my god (laughs) that um sewing is an anxiety attack like just waiting to happen for me is it yeah, I've never come to peace with, with sewing. I used to sew all the time. And I started um, quilting and applique stuff. Oh. And I love it. And I just like, oh, my God. And I didn't know. I mean, literally, it's been... So we started in 2004, 15 years, because I was just starting to learn applique then. And I was going to take a class. And I remember my husband saying... You you can't do that. You know, you don't have time for that. It's like, oh yeah, I don't. <laughs> so that's where it was. So I'm taking classes again, and, and you I know start- you have one of the craftiest women in the area, right in Kerhonkson. Who? Cal Patch. Have you met Cal Patch yet? No. I have to introduce oh, cool. you. She she is a name that back when I lived in the city you know, in the early 2000s and for a decade or so, she was teaching sewing classes. Uh And that's when I took a couple classes to dust off the skill and was like, this is so not for me. Uh But she teaches applique and creative mending. But she, it was a name that I hadn't heard for probably like 10 or 15 years. And recently I've been working on having a uniform dress made. I just want to not decide about clothes uh-huh. anymore. I don't like shopping. I don't like getting it all altered. I just want to have a dress made that uh-huh. I can just put on and fits me. Uh-huh. And out of the blue in the last six months or so, her name came back into my orbit and turns out she's up here now too. Oh, cool. And so she's been working on a dress for me, but she teaches amazing classes oh, all over the country. But Definitely but a lot she around lives here. Right down the road from me. Okay. Yes. Cool. We'll make that happen. All right. <laughs> like literally, as you were naming activities, uh-huh. it was like Calpatch, 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 Calpatch. Nice. Thanks. <laughs> so it sounds like life is pretty good for you right now. I think so. Yeah. How do you hold yourself back in terms of that steam? Right. Because I think it's easy to say like, okay, like for right now, like you need a break and you're still peeling back the layers and Mm -hmm. and figuring out. I hear you as a recovering type A workaholic and I'm like, holy crap, how does she Hmm. how does she maintain that? Because I feel like I would be chomping at the bit if I was in your shoes. Well, I'm not sure that I'm a a workaholic, actually. So I'll I'll take issue with That's that. That's my label. Yeah. Not I'm not. Well, no, projecting. because I think of workaholics as somebody that can't not work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I can not work. I mean, I'm... So that's easy for you. It's it's not easy, but it's not impossible. And, you know, I worked really hard because it's what we had to do. It wasn't that it's... it. Um, it's not that I work really hard because I can't not do that. You know what Got I'm it. saying? There's a difference. So, um, and I also know that I've needed, and I've known this for years, that I've needed to learn how to play. That 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 was that was something I have not been good at. I was not. I didn't come into a family that way. We we weren't players that much a little but not the way I know some people are really good at playing and so that's been part of my agenda is to um, get better at that talk to me about this because this one as soon as you said the word play Mm -hmm. I felt like my spine Mm -hmm. sat up a little this is something that appeals to me on a personal level Mm -hmm. like that journey of trying to understand it and break it down a little bit more and I would be willing to throw down some serious dollars that there are women listening that yeah. also struggle with that notion of being playful. Right. It's being playful, but it's also finding what brings you joy. Um, and knowing that, again, this is kind of a, a tributary of this listening deep inside thing of that you deserve joy not only that you deserve joy, but that this is really what we're here for. The planet needs you to be joyful. Most of us had experiences when we were young of playing and giggling and goofy and joyful and doing something for the sake of doing it and not for the pr- product that it produces. The achievement. Yeah. There's a lot of overachievers listening. Yeah. That it's not about what you do, um, it's about who you are. And that's what playing is about. That it's, it's not about achieving anything other than joy. And boy, does this planet need that right now. Because if you look at kids who are, they're just joyful, I mean, if you're they not, don't have to work at play like we it's do just as adults. Who they are, right? And you know, there's a lot of people that are that talk about this for adults in terms of movement and exercise too. That that it's about play, but if if we didn't have a culture that kind of stopped that, um, I think our natural inclination would be to expand our play into our lives and into being productive, but in a joyful, playful way. I think, again, that's, that's the path of deep listening. Um, when nothing else gets in the way, that just would all automatically happen for all of us, I think. Instead, we, we've all taken these detours into um, kind of the masculine linear, and I mean archetypal masculine, I don't mean male, but, uh, you know, the the A plus B equals C route, um, because that's the way it's supposed to be done. And that's the way our education system has been. It's changed a lot since I was in grammar school. So we take these detours away from our inner selves and, and, and our playful, joyful selves. And then the work is to figure out where is that voice again? You know, who, who am I really and what makes me laugh and what brings me joy? And it, again, doesn't mean no challenge, but what 
makes it exciting. I mean, that's when I opened up my sewing machine and I had that same feeling, it was like, I was so excited to have that feeling. That's mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, I, re- I felt like this a lot. Even when I made this purple plaid suit, because I love the fabric, and I ended <laughs> up making this double-breasted suit and matching this purple plaid. I mean, it's the most challenging thing I'd ever done. And it was hideous. It fit me perfectly. <laughs> I wore it once. Oh, well. <laughs> Because now I learn you don't make a purple plaid suit. I just love the fabric. But anyway, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it was real joy for me. And to remember that, you know, to find it so easily and remember that, oh, yeah, that was that was who I was when I was in, you know, junior high or whatever. Um, Do you have any advice for women listening that are like, Mary, Kara, that's really great. that you two can wax on about this because I think we're kindred in that we think about these things deeply, Mm -hmm. right? Like we're considering them to someone further behind us on the, on the trail in terms of play, like what are ways that you think would help make it actionable or help people discover their type of play? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you said something earlier about learning how to listen inside that there's, you know, there's two levels. First of all, we have to hear it. And second of all, then take the action. So I think, I think it's that process of giving yourself space. If there's something that you know you want to do already, even just giving yourself the space and time to do it is huge. But if there's, if you have no clue, making space to do nothing. Ugh. Yes. Um, is really important. And again, you know, kids are such a, I mean, we are so over scheduling our kids, but I remember, you know, raising my son, he'd be in his room and, you know, with nothing to do and he'd be happy and joyful and because he, he knew what he wanted to do. And when we don't have the space and the time to do nothing. And it's, it can be uncomfortable for people that are scheduled all the time and doing all the time and define themselves by their productivity as opposed to be just their humanity. And Um, what comes up in the quiet space. I mean, right. Well, know as a practicing therapist for practically three decades, right. That the first two layers can be really frightening for people because generally, if you haven't been listening to yourself, there's gonna you're gonna get a lot of talking to in there. (laughs) (laughs) I love that notion. Like that's when our body's like really wagging its finger at us. It's like okay, you know, here's my spirit, here's my soul, here's my body, whatever. Not my brain, not my head. Finally, getting some time to say what the hell are you doing? And that's probably the sanitized version of what what it's saying. (laughs) Exactly. So it's about just, you know, the image that I use is, you know, when a faucet has, the water's been turned off and you turn the water back on and it explodes and sputters and rusty water comes out and, you know, and it's scary and loud and you don't know what's going to happen. And eventually the flow comes, right? Mm -hmm. And those first practices are 
sputtering and loud and rusty water and garbage and all kinds of shit comes out. And, and it looks like, oh my God, this thing is going to explode. But it doesn't. What happens is you get a steady flow and you get more comfortable listening and hearing and kind of calms down. And then other parts of you can emerge. How does identity then fit into all of this, right? Because I'm looking at where you are in your journey, and I feel like right now I'm in between Act 2 and Act 3 of my professional life. Mm -hmm. And I am doing what you're talking about, like just carving out the things that, that were not turning the energy up for me and, and taking out things that were draining to me and really just focusing on, I like mediation. I'm going to do more of that right mm-hmm. now, right? Even if it's just on a volunteer basis, that's something that I'm not sure why it feels playful and like fun and easy for me, but I'm just going to follow that for mm-hmm. a little bit until I get some more information. And that's just one example. I feel like I'm picking up and putting down a lot of things right now. Uh-huh. But I think as someone who exited a business, as someone who is in the process of, of winding down a practice, I feel like in that quiet space, also the, the notion of identity comes up. Like, who am I? Or, yeah. Uh-huh. Or I have said I was this person for 10 years, you know, out in the ether, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you've been the Mary right. for years. And, right. How have you shifted that around or how have you considered that i'm not even sure what the exact right question but i think you you get the sense of where i'm going is well we're we're talking about kind of an ego external uh title versus um an internal um sense of self i think that identity um you know it's funny because or how do i explain to other people who or where i am right now Right. Like, I think that's you the don't question. have a title for that or you don't. Yeah, have there's it. no way to neatly compartmentalize yeah. it right now right. to make it bite sized for someone right. else. I suspect you'll find a way to put words to that. It's, um, you know, a, a friend of mine recently said and I've known her for God, 35 years. And she said something about how I'm so good at reinventing myself. And I th- I was just so taken aback by that because inside of me, I don't feel like I'm reinventing anything. It's, it's, these are all parts and layers of who I am. And again, I don't know what the world is seeing out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I care anymore, but, um, <laughs> welcome to 50 yes. and above, right? But, um, my identity, like I said in the beginning, you know, I see myself as a healer more than as a business person. But I think my definition of healing has expanded too. that business can be very healing. So um, you get to define that the way you want based on your internal sense of yourself. And I know the world expects you to have a title or a definition or a package, Um and you'll you'll find a way to make that work, yeah. you know. But again, if you're coming from your truth, then it all it all works because it's all different parts of who you are, and you're just kind of blossoming into this part now. <laughs> and you know, you you grew and developed that part, and wow, look at the sprout that's coming mm-hmm. up over here now. And you know, I I 
read about authors and artists being frustrated about being pigeonholed as an artist, you know, well, I'm a mystery writer or I'm not, and now I'm writing a book that isn't that way and they don't know what to do with me, you know, and they, I'm not in the cat in the category. <laughs> Why can't I fit into the box yeah, or the column? Right. Our culture kind of wants that neat and tidy thing. Um, but that's not who people are. No, I found it funny even when I was a CPA, right? Like, I mean, you think when someone says I'm an accountant, mm-hmm. And I always found it hysterical because I would go to like some sort of networking event and say, oh, well, I'm an accountant. And they would immediately make a joke about taxes. And I'm like, I don't do taxes. And then they would immediately make a joke about bookkeeping. And I was like, I don't do books either, Uh really. (laughs) And they're like, well, what do you do? And it's like, well, I turn around broken companies. Like I come in and I ask a lot of questions and Uh I interview and I fact find and I analyze and I study and I try to connect dots. But Uh no, I don't do any of those things. (laughs) So I feel like there's like a small part of me that's like, maybe at some point in my life, like I will have something easy for people to understand what I do. But even when I had an easy title, it still went sideways. Right, right. (laughs) I had to fill something out recently on a, um, you know, an intake sheet at a, place where I was getting a massage of all things, but, but they were asking me, you know, what, what I did, you know, (laughs) and what came out of me was that I was a serial entrepreneur in the food industry. And I thought, wow, that was interesting. (laughs) I I didn't know that. (laughs) I'd never said that before. That was kind of (laughs) cool. So there you go. You know, (laughs) I'm laughing because I, I know, and it's funny. I, it went to South by Southwest, which is a huge festival. Like I only saw numbers from a few years ago, but it's roughly in the ballpark of 75,000 participants. Wow. Like overtake Austin for yeah. the better part of two weeks. But everyone starts every question with, so what do you do? And I felt like I was on a sitcom or something because yeah. I was just constantly trying different to come things. Up with it, right. Yeah. Like I was just workshopping it. It's like, yeah. you know what? I know people are going to ask this. I really am. Try things on. Yeah. Yeah. The question is sort of grading me, but here's an opportunity to just like beta test, like how this goes Mm -hmm. or how, like how to navigate my way through these conversations. And sometimes it's just hilarious. Yeah. Finally, I just ended with, I think where I got after nine days was I host conversations. Some are fun, like podcasts, some are difficult, like coaching sessions and mediations. Oh, nice. And I was like, yeah, that's good. (laughs) <laughs> that yeah. works for now. That that encapsulates what yeah. I'm doing right now, at least. And feels genuine to me, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the other piece. Right. That answer popped out of you as you were filling out the intake form, but it also probably felt There's, really yeah. genuine. Yeah. I am a serial entrepreneur. How cool. I'm going to do something next, you know? <laughs> and it's in food. <laughs> You're going to do something next, but not till at least January of next year. That's right. That's <laughs> I right. love your moratorium, right. Ron starting anything new. Yes. Mary, this has been an amazing conversation. I have one more question. Okay. What do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know coming away from this conversation? Um, You know, I've talked about it in a few ways already. And I think that the most important thing that I think for every human being to know is that they're more than what they do and that you deserve the time and space to listen to your heart. Not only do you deserve it, but 
the planet really needs you to do that. Um, we need good energy more than ever. And we need heart, honest energy, you know. And when you listen and learn how to listen to yourself, because it takes practice and hear, that voice can be very quiet. It's there all the time, all the time. But it's often drowned out by so many other voices um, of shoulds. And But when you listen to that and start getting comfortable hearing her in there, having the courage to take action based on what your heart is telling you. And I think based on the conversation we've had today, it's not quit your job, start a company, like go bananas. It's really go crackers, crackers. I should say. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really, even those incremental steps are going to be huge to then leading to that further self-discovery. So, okay, here's my woo-woo coming out. Please Um, bring it. I believe that there are beings and angels waiting desperately to support us and help us. And that when we speak our truth, because they know what our truth is, and when we start taking action based on our truth, they are right there to help us. And that's when the miracles start happening. When I say, you know, the universe wants these crackers, it's because unbelievable people and things would happen to us all the time, right when we were about to fall off a cliff that let us know that there, you know, we were being supported in ways that we couldn't imagine. And that's, that's the leap of faith that it takes. But I absolutely know that when we come from that deep heart, truthful place, the angels are lining up to serve us. And I think sometimes how much power that we have that we don't know and understand or can quantify yet. Mm-hmm. One of my superpowers that I don't talk about with very many people, because I think it kind of freaked me out at first, but like, as I've gotten older, it happens more frequently for me. I can think of say a friend that I haven't heard from in a handful of months and I can think about them. And sometimes it's within an hour mm-hmm. and sometimes with it's within a day or two they will suddenly text me, call me, mm-hmm. leave a voicemail, or actually get me on the phone, which sometimes is hard to do because I'm having conversations mm-hmm. like this for hours. But yeah, it it's really funny how it happens. And I always think of those things as small miracles. I'm like, look, yeah. I just, my friend Brendan popped into my brain and lo and behold, and I is. finished breakfast and got a text. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think it happened, what was it, last summer, Brendan in particular, it was, I thought of him, I ate breakfast, I got a text from him that said, I'm going to be up in your area this weekend. Are you around for dinner? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't, you know, spoken to him for a handful of months. I just love those moments. Yeah. And I can only imagine right. the size and sheer magnitude once you put all of your being behind these crackers are happening. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Mary, this has been such a joy. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. It's really fun. Thank you. This is Kara again. Thank you for tuning in and sticking around to the end. Don't forget that you can find all the links and resources that we mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. So L-E, 
vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. If you really dug what Mary and I were talking about or dig this podcast in general, don't forget to show your support. You can do this by sharing this podcast with one human being you know. You can send it by text, email, smoke signal, whatever works for you. But it's a big help to grow and amplify the work of the women on this program. If you prefer to have the podcast sent to your email, all you have to do is text the word SALON, S-A-L-O-N, to 444-999. So if you want to pull out your phones, text the word SALON to 444-999. And boom, twice a month, it'll be in your inbox. And I want to give a shout out to all the people that contribute to making this show Craig Snyder, Darlene Victoria, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone in the High Dials. Merci beaucoup. And until next time, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you. <laughs>